0: This is The Ed Milet Show. Welcome back to Max Out, everybody. i got to be honest with you. I have wanted to have this conversation for a very long time, and I've wanted all of you to get a chance to listen to it, because the man to my left is my favorite pastor in the world, but he's also one of my favorite men, and he's growing to become a really dear, dear friend of mine, and it's because he's so darn interesting. This is one of the most interesting people you're ever gonna listen to. If you're a person of faith, you're gonna love today, and if you're not, you're gonna enjoy this journey like you can't believe. This man's an author, he's pastor of Mosaic Church, by the way, he's an entrepreneur, he's a fashion designer, Uh, he's a writer, He's, he's, uh, he's musically inclined, he's a true renaissance man. I won't call him the Dos Equis man because he's a Christian man, but he is, to me, one of the most interesting men in the world. So Erwin McManus, welcome to Max Out.
1: Oh man, it's so good to be here with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretty good intro yeah, off the okay. cover. Live up to the intro. but <laughs> Live up to it, everybody. Trust me. So I want to talk about faith right out of the gate. All right. I want to get right into it. So one of the things I admire about you is that you came to your faith, as I understand it, a little bit later than most people in your family. You were sort of an atheist for a decent little part of your upbringing,
1: right? Well, we grew up pretty much ir- irreligious. I'm an immigrant okay. from El Salvador. And so we have a little bit of a Roman Catholic kind of like backdrop because yep. everyone in Latin America kind of did yep. and, but we never went to mass and it wasn't a part of our life. And, uh, but my, um, my brother was an atheist and I was more of a mystic. What's a mystic? I, I, I didn't believe in a personal God, but I believed that there was something spiritual, there's something transcendent, there's something more than the material world. Gotcha. I just didn't know what it was. Okay. And then my mom, uh, Brought a, brought a Buddha home when we were young. And so we kind of became Buddhists. And then later she started studying Judaism and, and became more informed by Judaism. And uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, I read every mythology book in the library. So I, I was always searching, but I just didn't know what I was searching for. But I think I knew why. There was a, a massive void and emptiness inside of me, a, a disconnection from people in the world around me. And I was trying to find some kind of answer to the existence of me.
0: I think everybody is yeah I agree and I think that there's a ongoing conversation in our souls and our hearts that are constantly trying to understand ourselves and what this life means where are we going when our physical body doesn't work anymore yeah. and um, and I think that knowing you have this unbelievable analogy that you use about phantom pain oh yeah that I think the entire world is about to benefit from if you've ever wondered do you wonder mm-hmm. if you're listening I think this is a perfect example as to the fact that you are so explain that.
1: Sure. Well, I was a straight D student first through 12th grade.
0: Straight D? D, Okay, that's impressive. I mean,
1: I might have flunked out a few classes too, (laughs) but I averaged around a D and barely graduated from high school. They just, they graduated me just not to have me back. I didn't go to college right away, just floated around working odd jobs, worked construction, worked as a lumberjack, worked as a carpenter, you know, just did all kinds of things. And, And I begged my way into college realizing my life had no direction and found a school that would take me on condition and then I stepped into a philosophy class. And next thing I knew, I became a philosopher and then suddenly started making straight A's and suddenly discovered a part of myself that had been asleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I became what I would call a Socratic. I really was uh, influenced by the Stoics and the teachings of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And this kind of began for me a real a conscious search for meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about with Phantom Pain is, is that one of the dynamics of Phantom Pain is that When a soldier loses an arm or a leg, they, for years, if not for the rest of their life, they have experiences where they think that arm is still there, where that leg is still there. They actually feel pain in that leg, even though it's not there. And one of the um, elements that has to exist for for phantom pain is that you had to have lost something that once was yours. And what I've come to believe is that ideals, human ideals, are the phantom pain of the soul. just the ideas let's say of world peace when people say they want world peace where do we get the concept of world peace because we've never known a world of peace right. when we think about things like justice for all where do we get this concept that everyone could have justice we've never known a world except the world of injustice when we think of ending poverty or ending disease or ending homelessness where do we get these concepts these ideals have never been experienced in human history right and so i'm convinced that these human ideals are the phantom pain of the soul. They're, they're our souls remembering what humans are supposed to be like. And that and it's our longing to reclaim who we are. Even like certain words like, um, when you say something's unnatural for a human or something's inhumane. How can something be inhumane if a human being did it? Well, I mean, when we see a killer whale uh, eating a seal, I, I've watched them where they take the seal and throw it in the air while it's still alive and then it comes down and starts swimming away and they come up to it and throw it in the air. And they're so delicate with the seal, they don't kill it. Until the seal is so tired, it can't swim away and then they they eat it. So they're playing this game with the seal, but the seal doesn't like the game. And we never say that 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 killer whale's inhuman. We just say it's just natural for the seal. When a tiger chases down a gazelle and, and consumes it while it's fighting for its life, we never say that's inanimal. But when a human being does something, when someone walks in and kills students at an elementary school, or someone randomly shoots 8 or 10 people in a, in a grocery store, we know that's inhuman, that's inhumane. The reason we have this sense of knowledge is that we somehow know that the way human beings are living their lives is beneath being human. We're the only species that doesn't know how to be the species. That's called therapy (laughs) i mean you know gazelles are not in therapy beavers are not in therapy kangaroos are not in therapy they just know how to be the species Mm -hmm. human beings have the highest intention and we're the only species that can live outside of our intention and i think that's like the core of depression Mm. you cannot be depressed if you cannot imagine a different self a different you a different life a different world depression is that your reality doesn't match to the ideals that are haunting you. And so I think actually even like depression and sense of despair and this anxiety and stress that all of us struggle with, those are actually beautiful reminders that we're meant for more. Oh my gosh, Erwin.
0: As you say that, what I think is, By the way, everybody, now you know I wanted Erwin. He's here for me today, just so that you all know. But I wanted to share him with you because, and you won't take, you're so humble, but Erwin's a brilliant man, and he's a special man. And he's got this incredible anointing uh, to communicate thoughts, and by the way, and possess thoughts that not everybody's capable of possessing, as you've just seen. And that's important to me because I think there's a segment of the world that hasn't yet accepted a faith or a God because somehow they think that that's less intellectual. That somehow that if I have these thoughts that, uh, you know, that uh, I don't believe in science, which you and I both sort of came to our faith almost the reverse (laughs) that way, which I'd like you to talk about in a minute. But this idea of depression that you said, as you were talking, I thought that is so true that we have this ideal or this comparison of what could be, and that's what depresses one. Because I think a depressed person compared to potentially a non-depressed person isn't experiencing more negative things in their life necessarily, or more turmoil or more anxiety. That's right, It's yeah. It's perhaps maybe the lack of believing in some other space. So I, for you, when you found faith, was it, you were sort of pursuing it almost scientifically. You wanted to prove it to some extent, did you
1: not? Well, I was, I, I was pursuing it at least philosophically. Okay. I was trying to find answers that made sense in a holistic way. Okay. And what became really discouraging to me, is, as I read philosopher after philosopher after philosopher, was I, I realized that they were in the same place I was. <laughs> <laughs> right. They were trying to make sense of life. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, I think my greatest comfort wasn't in the answers. It was in the questions. The fact that there might be a thousand different answers you know you're, you're a christian another person is a buddhist another person is a muslim another one's an atheist another one's an agnostic and if you're anything like me you've been several of those along the <laughs> way trying to find meaning in life but the questions were always the same now you realize wait a minute seven billion people are all asking the question why and, and no one teaches them that question i mean i have two kids and the first question they began to ask as children was why of they didn't ask what where when who those are more important questions those are functional questions for survival why is not a survival question Mm. why is an intrinsic question of the image of god in a person's soul we need the why not just the who when, what where when and how Mm. and and so for me i was driven by the why trying to find out what is the reason for life and then i started looking at religions and i was pretty much open to everything Okay. I I, I didn't have anything that I had written off except maybe Christianity. I have to admit, is that right? Yeah, (laughs) I I did. And I'm not sure why, but I was in a philosophy class and a professor read a passage in the Old Testament where it seems like God tells his people to go kill people for no reason. And then the professor read that passage and said, and this is supposed to be the God of love. And we all laughed. I laughed, too. And so in like 30 seconds, I discounted Christianity. And uh, but in the middle of all my pursuit, I uh, I started hearing about Jesus and um, and I wasn't resistant, but I wasn't open. Okay. you you know, I was I, I became resistant as I got closer to a point of intersection because I heard this thing about Jesus saying he was the truth. I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. When you give your life to Jesus, you're not allowed to pursue truth anymore. And so for me, it was a misunderstanding from the other side. And because I didn't want to become a dogmatic, close-minded, yeah. condemning human being. I love pursuing truth. I love the search for the uncertain and the mysterious. And, and so this idea that there was, quote, a truth, and once you have it, you're right for the rest of your life, wasn't appealing to me at all. Mm-hmm. It was when I finally understood that what Jesus was saying, no, no, no. When he says, I am the truth he's talking about, he's the trustworthy one. And that all truth exists because something can be trusted. Okay. And if there isn't, a God who can be trusted, then there really isn't this thing that we would call truth. And, and so I realized the fundamental question for me is, do I believe God can be trusted? And, and so I looked at all these religions and I realized, oh, they all have something in common. They all give us a system of how we can get to God, of how we can attain God's love or his acceptance or his forgiveness, or get that ultimate state of consciousness, whatever it may be. But Jesus was the only one that had a different narrative everything else said this is what you need to do to get to god with jesus it was this is what god did to get to you and and so i went okay you know i I have a process of elimination where any god that demands of me things i'm incapable of to earn his love is not worthy of my worship Hmm. or my belief Hmm. but if when i love someone when my kids were little My love for them wasn't contingent on what they did for me. I was the one who loved my children unconditionally. In fact, when my son was like uh, three years old, at the dinner table one night, I hope it's okay if I say this, you know. But he he said to his mom, you know, I don't love you, and his mom started crying at the dinner table. And uh, and of course he loved his mom. He just learned that that phrase had power. (laughs) And so we got into bed that night and. And he said, uh, I said, Aaron, I love you. And he said, well, I don't love you. And I said, well, you know, I said, that's OK. He
0: hmm.
1: said, because I have enough love for both of us. And then he paused and he goes, well, Dad, how do I know if I love you? Like He's a very philosophical, deeply thoughtful from, person. Really? <laughs> he goes, how do I know if I love someone? And, uh, and, and I told him, I said, you know, right now in your life, buddy, what's more important is that you know you're fully loved. And, uh, and as you know that you're fully loved, you're gonna understand love more and more. And one of the things that I realized about God was like, if my relationship with God was dependent on how much I love God, I'm in trouble. But my relationship with God is actually dependent on how much God loves me. And Jesus is the singular narrative of the divine that says, no, God did what was necessary to get to you. That through God stepping into human history, taking on flesh and blood, dying on a cross, Uh, being risen from the dead, that that wasn't God waiting on us to get to him, that was God getting to us at any cost. And by the way, if you think the central principle of the universe is love, then of course the ultimate act of love is going to be sacrifice. So it makes perfect sense to me, because God is love, that the ultimate expression of God's love was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross.
0: So I'm 50 years old, and I feel like I'm a pretty faithful guy. I've been a Christian a long time. I've never heard it said that way in my life. That it, it's a huge impact. It's not how I can get to God, it's what God did to get to me. Yeah. That is uh, profound and uh, makes, me very, makes me very emotional.
1: Um, but I think that's why we actually know love more profoundly, not when someone loves us, but when we love that person. And we all, we all desperately long to be loved because it validates our worth. But when we love someone unconditionally, it actually makes us more like God.
0: So beautiful. And by the way, any of you that are, you're driving in your car right now and you're starting to think thoughts you never thought before, you're thinking them, you know, a very simple thing I tell people all the time for me too, is like, I, I don't think you can love someone more than I love my two children. And to think that the Lord loves me even more than that, even with less conditions than that, is such a beautiful thing to just know in our lives. And, One of the things about reading scripture that, um, I'm not great at retaining scripture. And I know that, I know that that's probably not something that's positive to admit, but I know, but I do know how scripture makes me feel. Mm -hmm. And I know the peace that I get when I read it. And, um, I heard you say something so interesting about reading God's word that, Maybe you're you're we read God's Word because we want to understand more about God But you really believe that you started to study the Word of God to learn more about you
1: Is that how is that correctly said? Uh, very very much. So like <clears throat> I see myself far more as an anthropologist than a theologian and a part of that for me is I I, I don't know how to study God. <laughs> you know when people say I'm a theologian. That means the study of God I don't think God's supposed to be studied. I think God's supposed to be known and I don't study my wife. I love my wife. I come to know my wife. I don't have a knowledge of my wife. I have a knowing of my wife, which is very, very different. And, and I think, unfortunately, sometimes we confuse those. And I, I, I'm not interested in uh, gaining more and more information about God. I'm interested in finding intimacy with God. Wow. So I began studying the Bible, not to really learn as much about God as much as I wanted to learn about us as humans. Mm-hmm. And it was a part of the way I vi- validated the Bible, because I thought, why do I believe this book? I didn't grow up with this book. Why don't I believe war and peace? Why, you know, why, you know, why, why isn't Catcher in the Rye my fundamental foundational book? And, and so I didn't grow up with this advantage, I guess, that Christians have of believing the Bible without questioning. I question everything. <laughs> and, uh, so I thought, okay, first of all, if what the Bible says about humanity is accurate, then I can have greater trust in what it says about God. And, and if we're created in the image of God, Two things can happen. As I understand who God is, I can understand who we are better. But also, as I understand who we are, I can understand who God is better. And so I became an anthropologist and it just gave me so much insight into humanity and what are the core intrinsic motives that uh, that drive us all. And, and I think this is why it's so important. Like when I speak in, in the secular world, I mean, you, yeah. you, you posture me today, it's just talking as a pastor, right? And I actually love being in environments where I get to talk, not as a pastor, because then people think, oh, all he can do is talk about God. Mm-hmm. said, so no, see, when you connect to God at a deep level, you can talk about leadership, you can talk about relationships, you can talk about emotional and mental health, you can talk about every arena because you begin understanding humans better. And, and a huge drive for me was hey, if God's out there, he's fine. I'm the one who's really needing help.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And
1: and so at Mosaic, we did a survey one Sunday, and I just asked everyone, how many of you are atheists? We had over a 1,000 people at Mosaic on the property property. who who said they were atheists. And uh, and that's just how many people acknowledged they were atheists, not even other people who didn't that day. And I've talked to so many of my friends who are atheists, and I said, why do you come to Mosaic? They said, because you're... Your perspective on life and on us makes more sense to us than ours. And, and frankly, my journey to help people to faith isn't to try to argue with someone about God. I'd rather take the time and talk about who you are and help you under, understand what it means to be human. And as that understanding grows and deepens, I know it's going to naturally lead you to God. Like this event that I just spoke at that you were asking me about, this 100 million um, mastermind. I told him, I said, look, Everyone in this room is on a search to understand themselves. But how can you know who you are when you don't know what you are? And because if, if you don't even know what it means to be human, you're never gonna understand what it means to be you. And so I spent my whole session with them just talking about what it means to be a human being and how we've lost our, our sense of humanity. And, if, and our search to reclaim our humanity is actually our search to reclaim the image of God in us.
0: I totally believe that. And, and speaking, by the way, of business, because this man is an entrepreneur. And uh, one thing that fascinated me, I, I sometimes think maybe if people don't know me very well, or even if they do know me, they'll think, you know, I'm only a really confident guy or whatever, right? which I'm pretty pretty good at expressing that without it always necessarily being the truth. Mm -hmm. But where my confidence does come from is a uh, belief that I do have a God that loves me Mm -hmm. and he'd like me to not, he'd like to protect me. And I think he'd like goodwill and good favor in my life. And that is a sense of deep confidence for me. And as a businessman, it's been critical to my success before any business meeting I've gone into, to just get the comfort of saying a prayer, to ask the Lord, you know, let the Holy Spirit give me the right words. I, give me, the, give me the, the peace that I need to deliver here today. Knowing that when I leave, if I do or don't get that deal, God still loves me. And those things have mattered to me. And one of the things that surprised me, because that part of my faith came very natural to me. Not all of the stuff did, but to me, if God loves me, if there's a God, He's with me all the time. He's with me when I get in my car, he's with us in this conversation, he's with me when I'm trying to close a deal, right? And it's always surprised me, Erwin, when I meet people who on Sundays have great faith Mm -hmm. in church, they're in worship, they're all excited, they'll go to a Bible study, they'll go to a men's group, but then when they walk into a boardroom Mm -hmm. or they walk in to cut a deal, now they're alone again. (laughs) And I've always thought, why is it? And all of you listen, you wanna know know all the keys I give you of mindset and visualization and all that stuff? I'm gonna give you my big one. When I walk in to do a business deal, I'm not walking away from God when I do it. That's right. And do you do you speak to that for a minute? Because I think even perhaps you've seen this in your life with business people you've interacted with. It's like, hey, listen,
1: this God thing, he's with you all the time. It's not just when you're praying on Sunday in church. No, right? that's so, so good. And, uh, you know, just the word confidence, it's just a construct of two words, It means with faith. And so confidence means with faith. And what I think sometimes people forget is that every human being, lives with some dynamic of faith that that fear is the negative side of faith and so fear is projecting into the future a worst case scenario mm-hmm. and faith is projecting into the future a best case scenario and it's just like with hope you're talking about earlier about depression so let's work our way up yeah. to confidence in okay. the business environment uh, we get depressed because we lose hope now one of the interesting things about hope because i i love like studying how things exist in the in our internal universe hope cannot exist in the past when your hope is in the past it's called regret hope can't actually even exist in the present and that's that's actually accomplishment so for something to actually give you hope it has to exist in the future in fact um paul writes that when something is a source of hope once you attained it it's no longer a source of hope that's why people who are single think oh when i get married i won't be lonely when I get married I'll finally be happy when I get married it's all going to come together then you get married well the idea of marriage was a source of hope but once you're married it's no longer a <laughs> source <trying to laughs> now
0: it's, true, it's a reality
1: yeah and so your hope always has to be in the future so what that tells me is that humans are designed to be connected to the future which makes us different than every other species that exists and so then when our future seems inaccessible mm-hmm. When we no longer we can create this better idea of who we can be or a better idea of our life or a better idea of our world, we move to despair. The reason you have confidence is that you've even, maybe even unconsciously, accepted your role as a creator. Now, when I first talked about humans being creators, Christians got really nervous. Right. You know, only God's a creator. I said, no, no, God is the one who is the instigator of all creation. But he made you in his image. So he made you a creator. And The way I can know this is that You've been given an imagination. You've been imagined to imagine and you are created to create. You are both a work of art and an artist at work. And once as a human being, you realize, oh, wait a minute, a part of being human. Ants create colonies, bees create hives, humans create futures. And one of the unique design mechanisms of humans is that we create futures without even knowing it. Like silkworms they wake up in the morning and go, Am I gonna make a cotton poly blend or am I gonna make silk, you, right, you know? Right. And uh, I mean, <laughs> sheep, they only make wool. They just, they, they never make linen. And uh, <laughs> humans can't create pasts. All humans can do is create futures. But a lot of people live with a victimized mentality and say that their life is happening to them, yes. that their circumstances are more powerful than their inner world. And one of the differences about with you, Ed, is that you understand that your choices create I, I used to have it on our wall in our house, the most spiritual activity you will ever engage in is to choose. I would ask people, what's the most spiritual thing the you can do? The most
0: spiritual activity you can do is to
1: choose. Yeah, because I go, what's the most spiritual thing you can think of? Oh, to pray, yeah. or to read the Bible, or to meditate, or to go to church, go to mass, or, or to meditate. And I go, all of those have a precursor. You don't pray till you choose to pray. You don't meditate till you choose to meditate. You don't go to church until you choose to go to church. You don't, you don't give generously until you choose to give generously. Every spiritual activity has this one thing in common. You have to choose it. Mm. What makes humans different than every other species is the power to choose and in those choices to create. Mm. Our superpower is that we can materialize the invisible. So I, I heard years ago, you ever hear things that you think is in the Bible and you realize it's not in the Bible? Yes, yes You know. Yes. So one of those is that God created everything out of nothing. And I thought, oh, okay, that's what makes God different, right? He created everything out of nothing. But that's actually not what the Bible says. It says, the Bible actually says that God created everything that is seen out of that which is unseen. Now go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something that's unseen is different than something that doesn't exist. Because oxygen, the atmosphere is unseen. But it, it exists. exists. And if it didn't exist, we would suffocate. So the the existence of our lives is a proof of this unseen element. Mm. And so our scientists explored for this invisible reality called oxygen because of the effect it has on our, because we can inhale and exhale. Mm. And so it was the effect that made us search for the cause. And so then when the Bible says that all that is seen came out of the unseen, I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God created out of the unseen, what was the unseen? It was the imagination of God. So God created out of his imagination, out of his dreams, he imagined the universe and then spoke into existence. He imagined this planet with this perfect environment for life and then spoke into existence and going, wow. This is one of the things that translates to us. Yes. We actually imagine and create. We're the only species on this planet that can imagine something that does not exist and then create it. Yes. And that's what makes us unique as a species now. When a human being is not living up to their intention, they're not creating. Oh, gosh, that's good. And, and so then we're now the victim of what others are creating. Hmm. See, this is the powerful thing about Ed Milet. Thank All you. All right? Okay. You may not... People may not realize this, but we're living inside of someone's imagination. Now, you probably didn't design this house, and it's beautiful by the way. Thank you. But when you saw it, you thought, oh, I love this house. Yes. And you might even thought, this is the house I imagined. Yes. But it's the house someone else imagined. Yeah. Every time you walk into this door, yes. you're walking to someone else's imagination. That's so true. When we live in this amazing country with all of its problems and all right. of its shortcomings, we're living in the imagination of Jefferson and Washington. We're living in the imagination of Lincoln. The fact that even while we're working through racial equality and dealing with issues of social injustice, we are still living inside of the imagination of Lincoln ending slavery. Yep. We're living inside of the imagination of Martin Luther King Jr. When he said, I have a dream, I, I dream of a day where a man will be judged by the content of his character, not the color of his skin. When Barack Obama took the oath of office and became the president of the United States, he was literally walking inside of the imagination of MLK Jr we are all living inside of someone's imagination but the question then is are we creating a better future for those that are walking in our imagination because adolf hitler had an imagination it became a nightmare to the world there are others who imagine a world that is a nightmare for everyone else and this is what drove me crazy about christianity when i first became a follower of jesus christians were so passive they kept saying things like, oh, if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. I'm going, where'd you find that in the Bible? Like, you know, oh, you know, it, wasn't, it just wasn't God's goal. I would go to events where no one showed up and people said, well, everyone God wanted was here. I said, I don't think so. I think you're a terrible marketer and you did a terrible job planning this event. I think God's really embarrassed that you put his name on it. And, so and, and, and I began realizing that Christians have this passive view of the future. Oh, no, God's the only one that can create the future. They're going, no. See, evil men... Do not wait on God to give them permission to create the future they imagine. But for far too long, good people have been passively waiting for God to create the future. You know how God creates the future? Through you. He gets the future through me, creates the future through us. And one of the things that really attracts me and draws me to you is that you are creating a future for other people that they cannot yet imagine. You've you've compelled other people to believe they can be successful, that they can own a home, that they can have a career, that they can own their own business, that they can create a better world, not just for themselves, but for others. And every time we translate the power of that imagination into the creative force of creating a future, we've made the world a better place.
0: I have to just, I have to tell you, I've been doing the show for a long time. I, I no disrespect to any other guest. That's probably my favorite 10 minutes. If we could go back and do that again, I'm going to tell you why for a few minutes. First off, you're amazing. But I have a word of the year. Every year I, I pray for a word of the year. My word this year has been imagination. Oh, wow. And so um, I, I'm a, such a huge believer in what you've just described. And by the way, thank you for those kind words. I feel the same way about you. Um, you also give people the strength and the courage and the faith to chase that. I think one of my most of my friends, my dearest friends, you know, some are financially successful. Some aren't. Some are they're successful in the sense that um, I love people that are curious. Mm -hmm. I love people that have imaginations. I also respect people who have the faith and the courage the strength to step into their imagination and do something about it. And that's what you're just really describing right now I, I, your dreams everybody your visions that you have these are not hallucinations these are not jokes god's playing on you these are glimpses into what's possible in your life if you'll step into it boldly if you'll be resilient if you'll be tough if you'll find the resources if you'll pray about it if you'll speak about it and put it out into the world there's blessings coming your way maybe not necessarily to your point it wasn't god's will or it may not be your time right every single time but there's a blessing, and I have to tell you, it's so... Do you think that that's why, because a lot of you may not know this about Erwin, but first off, he's written so many amazing books. There's another one that's gonna be coming out this fall. What's the one this fall calls? It's is called? It's called
1: The Genius of Jesus.
0: The Genius, what's the premise of that book? I mean, I understand that genius is of Jesus, but no, I, I have, imagine it's brought something to do with human beings, too. Yeah,
1: I spent 40 years studying genius and 40 years following Jesus and i realized there was a, an intersection that was unexpected for me because every list in the world i ever found about geniuses never had jesus on the list he's not on a single list i've ever found in the world and i thought it's so odd that muhammad's on list, gandhi's on list, buddha's on lists mandela's on lists but jesus never made a list so i i started wondering if i remove all the divinity from jesus does he qualify as a jesus as a genius and, and ironically, the original concept of genius, which came from the Greeks, is, is genie, that you're touched by the divine. Okay. And so the original definition of a genius is a touch of the divine. It's Mozart, it's Beethoven, it's Picasso, it's Hawking. It's like, it's Michael Jordan. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's a touch of the divine. And, and I started wondering if genius is, in a sense, a small window into the extraordinary nature of God and the potential of humans, Yes. then the genius of Jesus would be in, in his living out what it means to be human. And and I wanted to search for genius that was transferable. Because if I spent my life at Mozart, I'm not going to come out a musician. Yep. If I spent my life at Picasso, I'm not going to be a painter. But here's an interesting thing uh, a study was done in the 60s uh, using technology, methodology used with NASA. Okay. And they were identifying creativity, high level creativity, genius. The study found that uh, when they translated the children, that 98% of children at the age of five came out as geniuses. Mm -hmm. They tracked those children for the next decade. By around the age of 12, only 30% of them were still geniuses. By the age of 20, only 2% were still geniuses. And so what you find is that human creativity, human genius is intrinsic to being human. It's natural to who we are. Genius has to be destroyed It doesn't have to, in a sense, be developed. It's it's natural to us. Mm. And creativity, every human being is creative, but we die so uncreative. Every human being is extraordinary, but we die ordinary. And so in the genius of Jesus, what I try to extricate is the genius that Jesus actually emulates, that he expresses, that he reveals to us, that is available to every single human being. And because I I want a world where everyone is living out their creativity, where everyone is is seeing their imagination translated into reality as the as the most beautiful future. I want a world where everyone's genius is awakened. And I believe in that. Uh, You may not know this about me, but um, uh, by the time I was 12 years old, I was in a psychiatric chair and I spent time in and uh, time in and out of a hospital. And I was told I was retarded. I was um, I I I. If you looked at me at the time in my life, I was so broken and so fragmented, you would think I would never uh, accomplish anything in my life. And I believed that about myself. I believed that I had no talent, no ability, no intelligence. It took 12 no years gifting. to get
0: the genius out of you and your own belief system.
1: Yeah. And what it was is that I was fighting, trying to hold on to my uniqueness. And, uh, and, uh, and it was driving me insane. I, I was going to a point of madness, even to a point where I, I ran away from home quite a few times. But I actually go, went out to a field, and I convinced myself I was from another planet. And I started screaming in the middle of the night uh, that I believed that was like the social experiment to see if our species could, could, uh, uh, to, could live with humans. Yeah. And, and so I was begging them to take me back. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I, now I know that was just my desperate sense of aloneness mm-hmm. that I think all of us struggle with, no matter how successful we are, no matter how much, you know, we have in the world, how much other people emulate our lives. We struggle with the sense of connection. Yes. And, and, and I think some of it, though, is it's not just a disconnection from each other. It's a, it's a disconnection from our core selves. And, and I look back now and I laugh, because they say in neuroscience that the first 12 years, you teach your brain what to uh, focus on. Yeah. So if you focus on math, you become a mathematician. If you focus on literature, you, you, know, you become a prof- whatever English professor. Well, I realized the first 12 years of my life, I was so messed up, I hid in my imagination. And what ended up happening was I realized, I'm either gonna use my imagination to escape the world, or I'm gonna use my imagination to create a new world and so now that i'm almost 63 i realized oh i've just gone back to my initial space as a child i never gave up on my imagination Mm. and i understand the power of the imagination to create and that's what i want to help everyone else rediscover do you
0: believe i believe that everyone is born with that form of genius there's a unique giftedness that's wired into us uh, two or three unique things could be your humor your beauty your intellect your daughter's this amazing singer your you're obviously an incredibly creative person. I'm a client of yours in your clothing brand. I wear your stuff all the time on my Instagram. But every time I get a compliment, I'm pretty much wearing your clothes, right? You're wearing them today. Um, the way that you write and express yourself, I, I, but, but people think, well, maybe my gift isn't. They, there's these apparent gifts, as you said earlier, Michael Jordan, six foot six, sure. can windmill dunk and shoot, and, but there's these gifts that we don't give ourselves credit for. It could be your discernment, your kindness, your your uh, your sensory acuity, your humor, your touch, you know, there's. you're born with them. And I just think, I feel like that imagining what those gifts are and how to use them in the service of other people is the most blissful people that I know, and, and they're across the board. They're school teachers and they're CEOs that are multimillionaires. Yeah. And both of them, what they have in common, if they're happy, if they're successful, A, in my opinion, they know Jesus, and B, they know who they are with their gifts, and they're imagining. I love your word, different ways to use them to serve other people. You seem to do that all the time. If it's your clothes, it's your, it's your, uh, you know, the the writings are just unbelievable. Do you do you ever feel like people feel, hey, you're a pastor, you should stay in this box over oh, here doing that? They've been that. telling
1: me to stay in my box all my life. Have they yeah. seriously? But you know, as a designer, I want to add to that. Yeah. As a designer, what I've come to believe is the most beautiful color is love. And you know if a person says, where do I start? Just start loving the people in your life. Because when you start living a life of love, the whole makeup of your life changes. Because you know, if all of us are here to create a work of art, and, and a part of what always haunted me was, would I ever create that one work of art that I was born to create? And, and one of the things I think that I've come to grips with in my life is the most important work of art in your life is your life. And that's really your great masterpiece, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, when I, when I write, when I design, when I create, I'm actually trying to bring something to the world. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to give people the material from which they can create a more beautiful life for themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's part of the reason why I, I, I do design clothes. Oh, I got so much hate. And, and I got hate because uh, my stuff is actually expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> you know? but, but I feel like jesus turned water into wine and it was the best wine in the world he didn't create some you know shangri-la you know midnight special thing you buy over you know at 7-eleven or something like that he created the best wine in the world and so when i designed clothes ago i want i want aspire to create the best clothes in the world mm-hmm. and uh you know i i want i want to always measure myself against the best of the best whether it's louis vuitton mm-hmm. or michael jordan or mm-hmm. whoever it is and i i want, Uh, I may never be the best, but I'm not going to allow myself to feel like I'm great just because I'm measuring myself against the worst. Well, about that, I want to ask you about that. One of the things
0: I've seen you get passionate about that I'm kind of crazy about too is this settling thing in life. Like, it's hard for me, this topic, because, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, people will say, when's enough enough? For me, at no point in my life was there a real desire to get rich like, and by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong if that's a desire. Mm-hmm. I just, it wasn't mine. Mine was, a, I'm left-handed. I think I'm right. I'm very creative. Mm-hmm. So for me, similarly to you, I just learned to monetize it better than you did, as we've joked <laughs> about, but wow. I'm a creative person. I like expressing myself, creating businesses, creating products, creating thoughts and concepts more than I was like really intentional about getting wealthy, right? But I don't want to ever settle for the lack of expression of whatever those gifts are. I feel like these gifts are muscles that we can build as well. Absolutely. And I see so many people in life, for whatever excuse they come up with, they just settle. They just go, yeah. this isn't, yeah, okay. And there's this point where that genius does begin to die, even if it, they had kindled it later. They're, yeah. they're in their 20s, they were successful. And then, you know, they just kind of called it quits at 30 years old or 40 years old or and you, 60 years old. How do you feel about that? Is there some obligation we have if it's the right
1: term to not settle in our lives absolutely and one of the one of the things i would say is that it's not just that you learned how to monetize better you actually understood your value better you understood that your contribution actually mattered and if something matters in the world it needs to be resourced because if it isn't resourced then it doesn't replicate and one of the things that sometimes we forget is that uh, money um is the best evidence of our value. It shows us what we care about in life. You know, uh, I've spent my life in like this overwhelming haunting that I would settle for too little, that I would never live my life with the full intention that God created me to live. And, and some of it is, you know, my own personal dysfunction, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, being told that I would never accomplish anything, uh, being explained by a parent that, hey, I, we always told you you were nothing hoping that you would rebel so that you would prove us wrong.
0: Not a great strategy. It's it's a terrible parenting strategy, (laughs) but that was the strategy they had.
1: And I I took my son when um, he was 15 to meet my stepdad because he wanted to meet my stepdad, Bill McManus. And and in that one meeting where my son met my my stepdad, he said to my son, I don't know what your dad's told you, but he was just average. Oh my gosh. He said, you know, his brother was exceptional. He was a great athlete. He really had talent, but your dad was just average. and I remember saying you know, to my dad, saying, hey, dad, what else would I say? Of course, I was just average. And as I left, I had this like haunting pain of, why was this the one thing my dad wanted to say to my son about you know, his dad? But then I, it, but I was haunted by something worse. I was never average. I was always below average. Average would have been a compliment. I was afraid to put myself out there because I was afraid that I would prove that I wasn't anything.
0: Mm.
1: And i think a lot of us settle not because we don't have aspirations but because we're terrified that if we try it will prove everyone else right that we're less than we hoped mm-hmm. and and so i've lived my life as a metaphor people told me i mean i'm super shy super introverted super reclusive and so um i told myself i'm gonna put myself out there i'm gonna learn how to become a communicator I'm gonna learn how to be a leader. When someone told me I couldn't do something, I just went out and did it. You know, when, And when tell, people tell me, you're a pastor, you, you can't do this. I just go break the stereotypes and do it. I became a, a designer years and years ago because I felt like creatives were not given value in the church. That creativity was seen as almost against God. And I became an entrepreneur because I felt like, especially Latins were so passive, they kept waiting for someone else to uh, change their fortune. I said, no, as a Latino, you have to go create a new world. You have to uh, believe in your dreams. You you can actually aspire. And I feel like crazy because I want people to realize failure doesn't kill you. It doesn't end your life. And, and, and so yes, I, one of the things I cannot stand is when a person chooses apathy. Because apathy literally means the absence of passion. And you cannot live the life God created you to live without passion. By the way, this is why I'm not a Buddhist. A lot of Americans love Buddhism because they don't understand Buddhism. Buddhism's ultimate end is the end of desire. It's the elimination of passion. It's the elimination of self. Christianity is different. See, Buddhism says the great evil is your desire. What the Bible actually says, no, God created you with desires. And those desires will actually become your your compass to the life God created you to live. The Bible actually says, love God and he'll he give you the desires of your heart. Mm-hmm. God actually wants to fulfill those desires. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that really draws me to Jesus is how passionate he was. If you wanna know what God is passionate about, look at the cross. In fact, the last three days around the life of Jesus are called the passion. That's right. Because if you wanna know what God's passionate about, look what he's willing to sacrifice for. He was so passionate to end the destructive power of death that he died on the cross for us. He was so passionate to bring us to life, that he died for us. I'm going, oh, God is not a God who's apathetic. He's not trying to move us to the end of desire. God is trying to move us to the most passionate life possible. That's freaking brilliant, Erwin. It's exciting to me. That means I get up in the morning, I get to feel fully alive. So do you think there's a
0: correlation between one's passion level and their willingness to sacrifice then?
1: Absolutely, because you can only know what you're passionate about by what you're willing to sacrifice for. (laughs) And there's a lot of things I'm interested in, but I'm not passionate about I'm just not willing to sacrifice for them. I was at a a TED in Rio de Janeiro and came out of the lobby. There was this whole group talking and uh, the founder of the uh, Center for Global Consciousness from Hong Kong was speaking. And I somehow got pulled into this conversation and he said, if we're going to achieve our ultimate humanity, we need the elimination of all thought. And I said, when you say the elimination of all thought, do you mean also the human imagination? He goes, absolutely. We must come to the elimination of all thought, but it's not just that. And I said, well, what else? And he said, if we're going to become the ultimate expression of humanity, we must also eliminate all feeling, all emotion. And I said, when you say all emotion, do you also include love? He said, yes, even the elimination of love. And I looked at him and said, no, give me love and imagination and I can change the world.
0: Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. And I think a
1: lot of people are on the wrong spiritual pursuit because they don't understand that the central message of the scriptures of Jesus is that give me love and imagination and you will change the world. Oh my gosh. See, this is
0: one of these things you guys, I heard Erwin, Erwin will probably end up being on the show about 46 times, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Cause I knew this would be the, what we would do today. Like I haven't even gotten into his childhood. You heard a little bit about his dad there. There's all these things. And um, just, you know, I just want to, first I want to say one thing, all of you should be following Erwin. Um, you're gonna want to get any of his books that are already out. Um, the one that's gonna be coming out, you're gonna want to get. But I gotta tell you guys something. I started the show by saying that I really believe you're unique and special because of your entrepreneur background, because of how creative you are. You're you're not a you're a contrarian thinker, who but a man who believes in a very deep faith that he's carried for a long time, but you're still a contrarian thinker. And I love that about you. I, I, I want to get two more questions in, even though we're over on time. Do you, okay, we sure. Good? I, uh, I loved today. For me. Oh, I've got, I get everybody gets to listen I, and to watch. I'm just really honored to be on the show with you. Oh, man. brother. You're gonna be, you, I am so excited because there's shares going on all over the world right now, There are people that are watching <laughs> this and listening to it, especially the ones that are listening to it. But you also, you know, this life is precious, and you were sick. You, uh, yeah. you had cancer, I did, and that can make a different impact. Did, when you first got it, were you scared? How did it impact
1: you, your faith, overall? Sure. Uh, it was in December, uh, three years ago, mm-hmm. that uh, I was actually just uh, trying to get a key man policy for my business and okay. for um, the church, okay. so that if I died, I would leave them something. Okay. And I went 10 years without able only get a key man policy. I couldn't pass an insurance test. Mm-hmm. And so I, would, I went to the Middle East without any, you know, insurance like that, and I would joke about that um, insurances don't give you life insurance, they give you death insurance, death insurance. right, you, you know, because right. I'm fully alive. And, and, <laughs> uh, and, but um, So I was taking tests just to get the insurance, and I went to a doctor friend of mine and said, I can't pass these tests, but they can't find anything wrong with me. I said, can you find me a doctor that could, like, you know, like an athlete in college, help me pass these tests. (laughs) (laughs) And my doctor friend said, that's illegal. uh, (laughs) I'll send you to an old school doctor and he'll help you. And that old school doctor, who must have been like almost 80 years old, uh, figured out I had cancer. And they took me in for testing and I had stage four cancer the day they found it. And it was not just in my prostate, it was in my bladder. It was in in my lymph nodes. And um, so it was, you know, pretty advanced. And they put, and then they sent it to a radiologist who was, uh, I guess, a specialist in bean radiology. And he was out of town on vacation. He flew in just to meet with me. And he sat down and he goes, I can't help you. This cancer is too advanced. Uh, The treatments won't help you, won't save your life. He said, but um, my daughter's lives have been changed by you. And so I flew in from out of uh, the state. I was on vacation, but when I saw it was your name, I flew in just to meet with you. And he pulled out three names and three faces. He goes, these, these are the three best surgeons in the world. And if you'll, if you ask me, I'll call them. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'll take this one and this one. Mm-hmm. Just pick two, right? You know? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, he called them up and one of them is the, the doctor who invented um, da Vinci, the, yeah. the, the machine that goes in and performs the surgery. And, uh, um, and he fit me in three weeks later to have surgery. It was supposed to be a two hour surgery with six and a half hour surgery. Well, when the doctor looked at me, we went in just to get a clearance that I was okay. My kids were waiting for me at a restaurant and the doctor looks at me and he says, you have cancer. And uh, my wife started crying almost instantly. And it was when I looked at her that I realized how heavy it was. And then we went to the restaurant and I told my kids, it was very unwise of me to do that. We're in a restaurant, I tell them I have cancer and it was just more than they could bear emotionally. And I realized that part of the reason I didn't um, perceive how they would react, I wasn't afraid. And yet I can tell you that I felt no fear, zero. Now, I gave myself permission to feel anything I wanted. I hate when people feel like pastors are supposed to not be humans. Right. So I told myself, if, if I feel angry, I'm going to be angry. If I feel afraid, I'm going to be afraid. I'm just going to let whatever emotion I feel to be real. Mm-hmm. And I never felt fear. Fear no fear
0: or because you were okay if you passed on because you knew you were going or no fear because you didn't think this was the end
1: No, no fear because I had no regrets uh, I wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. I love this life. Are you kidding? I love the sound of the ocean. I love mm-hmm. looking at the beach I love my kids. I want to see my uh, my daughter have her grandchild There's so many things I love about life, but I didn't have this I think most of us are actually not afraid to die. We're afraid Because of the realization we never lived and i actually knew i'd lived fully and uh and the loss would not be mine it would be my family's Mm. but i didn't feel fear and i also i don't know i've walked in the middle of drug cartels i i i've walked into rooms where uzi machine guns were protecting every door and cocaine up the ceilings and and i never felt fear Mm. and it, it and i think some of it is i've never been afraid to die i've been afraid to not live each day fully. So three weeks later, when I'm going to surgery, I still hadn't felt fear, and I didn't feel angry, and I realized I wasn't angry because why not me? See, I I didn't have the sense of entitlement. Like, other people suffer horribly. Other people have experienced such pain and such tragedy. How in the world could I ever be a voice to other people if I was unwilling to go through pain and suffering and tragedy? And so my only, like, sense of I'd like to live is I could live through this so I can help other people through this. And when I got ready for the surgery, they, they explained to me they found more, more cancer than they thought, I had to sign some papers. And um, I said goodbye to my family and everything inside of me said, you need to say goodbye for the last time. And what was odd and I, I was writing a book called The Last Arrow. Yeah. And I, when they told me I had cancer, I went home that night when my family went to bed, I sat down and I thought, I have to finish this book. So I was in the last edit of my book and I opened up to the page I was on, and the first sentence I read was this, I need to tell you before you hear from someone else, I'm dying. I wrote that sentence a year before when I didn't know I had cancer. That's the first sentence I read the night I found out I had cancer. But the next line is the line that really matters. The next line after I need to tell you before you hear from someone else that I'm dying is, but so are you. And I've lived this strange sense every day of my life that I was dying and that I need to live today as if it was the last day. Here's the crazy thing. In between being told I had cancer and the surgery three weeks later, we had this really nice uh, hybrid uh, family SUV, and I wanted to give it to this couple. And my wife's so generous, she always wants to. So I went and got it fixed. I had it detailed, made it look brand new. I'm driving it back from getting detailed, detailed. The family is waiting at our house for the car. I'm three blocks from the house, a white truck speeds through a stop sign, hits me head on, totals the SUV, uh, totals that car. They run for their lives, and so it's a hit and run. And I'm feet away, and I, I think to myself, I'm not even going to have time to die for cancer. <laughs> I'm going to die oh, from you know, somebody oh, running no. a red light killing me. Oh, 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 oh. And, and the reality is that we don't know when we're going to die. We don't even know how we're going to die. And, but if we live with this sense of an expiration date, I think we'll live each day more fully so yes I had cancer oh and then and, and for me the most fun part of the story is coming out of it because you know six and a half hours of surgery and uh, and then I called my doctor I had a I had um, what's it called um, man I can't even think of the, the the phrase of that machine that they put into your private parts oh catheter I had a catheter yeah, yeah. that was worse than cancer and <laughs> I, know. Told me I had the catheter for a month So within a week, I called him and said, get this thing out of me now. Get it out. And I said, what's the fastest anyone's ever recovered from uh, this kind of surgery? And said, well, there's no like world record. And so three weeks later, I snuck out of my house uh, and I rented a basketball court and I called my guys and I was playing basketball three weeks after having six and a half hours of surgery and the holes were bleeding. Crazy, but man. my my three-pointer was dropping, yeah, so I knew the, God the, was with me. The
0: thing that we have not been able to cover today that I just want to say is this, because people that know us both, you're a psycho-competitive person. We're, that's uh, another I, conversation I, I, for another day, but yeah. this sweet, kind, brilliant pastor will also just cut your whatever he has to cut off to beat you in any sport that he's playing, as long as it's legal. So I got to say one thing, because I knew the... I knew that part of you, because we've shared this privately with one another, that you've always had this sense that you're dying, this, this yep. sense about you. And I just want our audience to know that that is one thing that you and I share very much in common. Mm-hmm. Ever since I was a little boy, Mike and I were talking about before you arrived here today. <clears throat> Mike, who everybody knows is my videographer, has done every one of our shows. And I was sharing that with Mike, mm-hmm. that since I was a very little boy, I've been very conscious about my death. And, and that not in the fact that I'm trying to speed it up, or that I'm manifesting it just in the fact that I do have an expiration date. And I I I think it's a beautiful thing to contemplate death. One of the great gifts of my faith is that when you're contemplating faith, you're also contemplating the physical death of your body. And that hyper-awareness of that has caused me to be in a little bit bigger hurry and to enjoy and to have perspective and to take time to notice important things in my life because I'm I'm a flawed human being. I'm a person, I'm a man, right? And so. This notion that I'm not going to be here forever w- causes me to want to be better, causes me to want to do things sooner, uh, causes me to enjoy things that maybe I otherwise wouldn't have perspective on. And so I, I think that, that sense
1: of death allows you to experience the eternal value of temporary things.
0: I think you're right. I think you're very because much right. Because then
1: you can live so fully present, present in the moment.
0: Present. And it's something that most high achievers struggle with is presence, is yeah. being in the present moment. I've struggled with that too, but it does give me that gift. You're 100% right. I, I want to ask you one more question. Uh, this is such a remarkable conversation today. It's, it's amazing because forever people have been trying to get you and I together. And then
1: when well, it's I... Quite we- a contrast from the one you had last week. It is different from the one that I had last week. That's for sure. Is it... Um- John, John Edward, John Edwards. Correct. And I'm just going to go public and say okay. that you asked me. It was you <laughs> and uh, if you should have him. And I said, absolutely.
0: You did say absolutely. One of things, you.
1: you know, one of the things drives you crazy about Christians mm-hmm. being afraid to have conversations with people that you disagree with mm-hmm. or or are different than
0: or don't understand and don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And I just
1: I I, I I love the fact that you were you had the courage to do that. Thank you. And so I just want to I want to go public. I say,
0: wanted you to be public because I didn't say who it was, but it was you and that, that ought to give you all an idea of how much admiration and respect I've grown to have for you that I wanted it to be okay with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was not only okay, I I, I applauded it. I I took great courage to do that. Thank
0: you, brother. And I enjoyed it very much. So speaking of courage, last question for this show, Mm -hmm. because I know there's going to be a bunch more. I want to talk about the last thing is that I'm someone who, I didn't come to the show today thinking I wanted to think about faith or God or anything like that, but now I am a little bit. Two things in there one what do you what would you say is what does god want to be in my life and what would be a first step maybe i could take if this is something that you know what that phantom pain has been awoken in me and i'd like to find more answers to it
1: well that's a it's a very both deeply spiritual and deeply personal question you know because a lot of times when you start talking to people about how to connect to god it can make them very very nervous You know, and I I think I would start by saying this. No one can drag you to God kicking and screaming. You know, it's it's, and I think that's been the mistake of not just religion, but even Christianity of trying to um, force people into a relationship with God. I always told people, I said, look, have you ever been around someone that you liked for a while, but then you really didn't like them anymore? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, that that's kind of like. That's, that's torment. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that you don't want to know God or don't want to be in God's presence is I think a misunderstanding of God. Because if I asked you the question differently, if I said, Ed, would you, would, you, would you want to live forever in an environment where you were unconditionally loved? You'd go, yeah, you know? Or if I said, Ed, would you want to live in a situation where you would always know your value You know, would you want to live for eternity where you lived free of fear and all the boundaries of your limitation were erased and now you could be fully you? Would you want to experience that? See, I I think the problem is that God's name has been connected to all the wrong characteristics. And I I tell people, look, when I use the word God, I'm describing my search for God. When uh, it's, it's like me looking for God, when I use the name Jesus, I'm describing God's search for me. And so for a long time, I could only use the word God because I, it senses I'm, I could only see the back of God's head. But when God turned around, I realized, oh, it's Jesus. And so what I'd say to a person who's kind of open, I said, the first thing is just to be open to the possibility that God is for you. And that, um, that God is not warring against you, that God is actually fighting for you, and that if you've run away from religion, you haven't run away from God, you're actually running to God. If you have run away from hypocrisy and the falsehood of religion, you haven't run away from God, you're actually running to God. Because God isn't there, God isn't the other end of that. And when you're running toward love, when you're running toward compassion, when you're running toward meaning, when you're running toward hope, you're actually running toward God, you just may not know it. And so what I would say is that, you know, there's a there's a universe of words that you need to begin to identify with God, words like love and hope, words like compassion and mercy, words like beauty and wonder. This reporter who was a journalist from, I think, New York Times or something, came to L.A. and she's an atheist. And she said, what does it feel like to believe in God? And I thought, what a great question, you know, I told her, I said, have you ever been so in love that like food just tastes better and colors are brighter and aromas are richer and. I said, when you're in that kind of love, you just, you just can't wait to get up and you can't wait to, you know, to, to get with them because you, all you can do is think about them. And I said, that's what it's like to, to come to know God. That's what it's like to come to know Jesus. That's what it's like to finally find an authentic faith. All of a sudden, like the Romans are richer and the colors are brighter and, and you, just, you, you, you just feel that your senses are heightened because you're so fully alive. And so first thing is you just gotta believe that God's for you and that, uh, that God can outrun you, because um, when you're running away from God, you're running from love. And you know what, the, when, you know, insanity is to search for love and run from God. Yes. And, and so I, I, I talk about like a line of faith, because for me, I didn't get all the answers when I trusted Jesus with my life. Um, I wasn't even sure if, if it was real, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just basically, said, God, if you're out there, I'm in. And Jesus, if you're real, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here. And so I just prayed a simple prayer. So, you know, at Mosaic, I don't go through a long, elaborate thing. I just say, here, here's the prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. And I said, there's going to be so many conversations after that. I said, it, 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 just imagine this line of faith where it takes incredible courage to say, God, I'm going to trust you to reveal yourself to me, to make yourself known, uh, to meet me where I am and to love me in all of my brokenness. And yes, things like forgiveness are important. You know, uh, not, not because God needs to forgive us, but because we need forgiveness. <laughs> you know, because forgiveness frees us from guilt and shame. Like forgiveness feels us, it frees us from the condemnation of the past. So, you know, the reason Jesus wants to forgive us is because he doesn't want to leave us trapped in our past. You know, it's not that God is up in heaven being this judge going, you need my forgiveness or I'm going to judge you. No, God is saying, no, you need my forgiveness so I can free you. And so see forgiveness and your need for it as God's way of freeing you to your future. And then realize that God has stepped into human history for you. That he's taken on flesh and blood for you. That what it looks like when God becomes visible is Jesus. You know, if you want a m- kind of a metaphysical, like, add to this. Um, we now know that mass and energy are the same. Yes. That sounds like superstition. Not that long ago, that would have seemed like, m- mythology, not right. science. But now we know math, 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 matter and energy are the same. We know this table and the light are made of the same material, which is crazy, right? Yes. So if God is light and he's moving f- so fast we can't see him, when God slows down... To take on material that's jesus so jesus is god slowing down into time and space to walk among us so we can see him because you know if you're in a car going 120 miles an hour and you're looking at the trees they look like a blur but when the other car is going 120 miles an hour and now you're going 120 miles an hour you can make eye to eye contact so god who is light slowed down so that we could see him face to face so that now we could live in that light and, uh, and, and not be trapped in all the brokenness and all the regret of the past. And so what Jesus does for me is he sets me free to be who he created me to be. And I just tell people, look, it's all about trust. You don't have to have all the information about God. You got married. You did not have all the information on your <laughs> wife. And she did not have all the information about you. When a person says, I need to understand everything, you go, that's not really true because you don't understand everything about anything. That's right. What you need to decide is who can be trusted. And this guy told me the other day, we need to accept that we're gods and that I'm a god and you're a god and our ultimate job is to love ourselves unconditionally. And I looked at him and I said, how's that going? (laughs) 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 He goes, I know the one thing you can never do is love yourself unconditionally. Mm. See, here's the crazy thing we're not capable of loving ourselves unconditionally. And I looked at him and said, that's why you need Jesus. He's the only one who can love you unconditionally even though you're not deserving of it. And so if you're listening, I would say, you are worthy of absolute unconditional love because God created you that way. And what God stepped into human history through Jesus to do was to create a way for you and him to reconnect. And that God's goal for you is not perfection, it's intimacy. And, you know, you and I, we, we, we finally relinquished the goal of perfection. That's right. You know, uh, but I don't ever want to relinquish the hope of intimacy. And, and that's what I would just challenge people to do. It's all about relationship. It's all about trust. Just take a moment, cross the line of faith. And, and if you're there, just say, Jesus, I give you my life and watch how God will meet you where you are and your life will change. Amen. I cannot believe I believe, Ed. <laughs> I, I, I'm Aaron, so I, you can't
0: believe you I, believe. I, I get
1: up on Sundays at Mosaic. I go, you understand. Like I have this skeptical, cynical mm-hmm. mind that I just can't believe I believe. But what can I do? When, when Aaron was around 11, we we're driving in the car. And he said, Dad, I don't know if I'd be a Christian if I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. I said, why is that? He goes, I have so many doubts and questions. I said, oh, doubts and questions. We all have those. And I was a little nervous, you know, what's going on. And I said, so what are you going to do? And he said, well, you know, I've met God, so I don't know what I can do. <laughs> and, and that's the way I still feel. It's like, yeah. oh, I have so many questions and so many doubts and so many uncertainties. And there's so much mystery. And doesn't it make life better? Yes. <laughs> yes. So, but, yes. But I've had this unexplainable encounter with the creator of the universe. And I've come to know his name is Jesus. And that's as real to me as us sitting here together today. And, um, and that has been what has given me meaning and wholeness and hope. And and that's what I hope for everyone. So do I. And by the way, as I said earlier, confidence, yeah. it's given me confidence in my life, too, in
0: addition to the things that it's given you. And I'm, uh, I'm so grateful for you because your vulnerability and your authenticity gives people like me. I wish I would have met you so much so many years ago, but I think we met at the right time. But that I don't have all the answers and I do have doubts and I do have questions from time to time doubts about why God doesn't handle certain things or why is someone suffering or why is this pain? But I've met him and I don't doubt that he exists and that's the beautiful part. And um, I'm so grateful for you. Today was uh, was very, very special for me and I know it was for millions of people. And I want you guys all following Erwin, I want you getting his books, I want you getting the one that's coming out. If you want some beautiful clothes on your back and you wanna look really awesome, Take a look into that too and share this show. There are people you know and that you love who need to hear or see what went on here today, and you know it. And so it ain't that difficult to say, share or watch this or give it a shot. So thank you, Erwin. Hey, thank you, you brother. so much. I love you right. too. God bless you all. Max out. This is the Ed Milet Show.